Welcome to Women of Marvel. I'm Judy Stevens. I'm Ellie Pyle. And I'm Angelique Rocher. First of all, gobble gobble. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Aww. You know, it is a strange, you know, it's a holiday, but I feel like we make the best of it for what it represents now, maybe. Yeah. Turkey I mean, gobble. Look, I had Friendsgiving. I think that's kind of like a, a thing that I love. Like now as I've gotten older, I don't really celebrate Thanksgiving for some reasons that are, are very much social causes, but mostly because I didn't really celebrate it as a kid. My mom would always be working at an annual football game called the Bayou Classic. And so most of my Thanksgivings ended up in hotel rooms. But yeah, I mean, I'm thankful for y'all. Yeah. We're thankful for you too. Yeah, Thanksgiving was always has always been a big deal in my family. I think part of the reason for it is that if you set the history of the holiday aside, then it it is a holiday where really what you're celebrating is the people in your life that you care about and delicious food. And my family always, you know, found that as very much something they could get behind as a holiday that you could sort of separate from the concepts behind it that you know it was just a chance to have a big meal with the people that you like. I think for me Thanksgiving is all about found family. My parents are both still alive and I love them very much. But living in New York City for now 17 years, it's become about obviously it's too expensive to fly home on Thanksgiving. Who are the people that you get to celebrate with and who are the people that you're thankful for? Yeah. One of my guests referred to it as the feast of friendship. And I think that's a good way to think about it. I yeah, like it. exactly. So we hope everyone out there is celebrating it in the way that they would like to and, and having a good time and maybe even going shopping online or in stores tomorrow. Let us know what you're buying. Marvel merch. We'd love to see it. Tweet at us. Instagram at us. But OK, so this week on Women of Marvel, we are going back in time to the 1970s. When you think the 1970s, you obviously think disco bell bottoms, very tacky, big polyester floral prints, which are actually sort of coming back. I think tacky is a step too far. I would wear these things. Actually, I think I am wearing something very similar to a 1970s jumpsuit right now. Look, I'd totally wear all the things you just said, clearly. Well, Angelique, you could pull them off. I just want to live in leggings all the time, so. <laughs> this is true. Leggings and shorts, Judy Stevens. That's me. I haven't wore a pair of pants, like a pair of jeans, in probably 10 or 15 years. Anyways, today we're talking about the 1970s, and it was the Bronze Age of comics, you know, this decade where we met characters like Wolverine and Ghost Rider, Luke Cage, Shang-Chi, Misty Knight, Gamora, and of course, Carol Danvers. But it was also right in the middle of second wave feminism. You know, this movement of time where women were really starting to question their place in society. And it was a period of time where, you know, Stan Lee and the different creators at Marvel really wanted to hit onto that. And Judy, I really love the fact that you mentioned that it was second wave feminism because a lot of folks don't realize that we've gone through multiple waves and multiple generations of feminism. Yeah, I mean, you look back to the original wave where women wanted the right to vote at the early 20th century. And now we're living in this amazing movement called fourth wave feminism. We're really starting to question identity and pronouns. And that's all amazing, too. You know, second wave 
was during the time when we started to first conceive of intersectionality, but it didn't have a name yet. And, you know, we really didn't get a word or a name for it until much, much later. And it was really a time that women started, it's not like women hadn't worked before, right? But it really became this period of time where women were really starting to come into the office. You know, we think of the Mad Men's time of like the 1960s and the 1970s and these stereotypical stories of women in the office at that time, you know, sitting at the secretary's desk with their typewriters. But the experience of women in the office wasn't always necessarily like that. At Marvel, it was the story of women who loved their jobs and liked being there and liked the people that they worked with. You know, you look at someone like Flo Steinberg, who was one of the first women in the office. I mean, Marie Severin was actually the first woman on staff, but Flo was really the first person to manage the boys and and get comics moving and interacting with the fans. You know, she was the first person fans would see when they would come up to the offices. She was this icon, fabulous flow. And then we have someone like Marie Severin, this iconic artist who was at points led many different things. You know, she at one point was one of the head colorists. She was the first woman on staff to draw comics, to ink comics. And she has an iconic story. I mean, even going all the way back to Timely before Marvel, you know, she got her job thanks to her brother, John Severin, who was also an iconic artist of his time. So those are just two of the many women that were there, you know, in that period of time. And when we look at that period of time, we really start to rethink gender and what it meant to be a man working versus a woman working and really flowed into the way that we discuss gender today, too. Yeah, yeah. So as part of that movement, and really also coming out of the indie comics that was coming out of San Francisco, Marvel looked to spotlight three new female characters and put female writers attached to that and, if possible, a female creator. And so this was in 1972, which was The Claws of the Cat, Shauna the She-Devil, and Night Nurse. And sadly, none of these titles really lasted terribly long But they had a huge impact on the Marvel Universe. Each of these characters ended up becoming something more later on. You know, you look at the cat who became Tigra, a former Avenger, and then West Coast Avenger, and then into the MCU where Christine Palmer in Marvel Studios' Doctor Strange comes from Night Nurse. When Marvel's Daredevil came out on Netflix, a bunch of fans were talking about the fact that they thought Rosario Dawson's character, Claire Temple, might be a version of Night Nurse. And Claire Temple was actually a character who existed in her own right and debuted slightly before Night Nurse in 1972. But clearly the concept of a Night Nurse is so enduring that they have had different characters kind of step into iterations of that role. I mean, that's the amazingness of Marvel Comics in the last 80 plus years of history. And also, Shauna is still around today. She had her own series earlier in the 2010s, and she's been featured in video games. So, and that's something that we sort of 
talked to the two women that we are talking to today. I was very excited to be able to talk to Linda Fight, who wrote Claws of the Cat, and G. Thomas, who wrote Night Nurse. Both these women came to Marvel via sort of friends or family or connections. They have great stories about how they either sent a letter to Stan and Flo responded or being dragooned into the office, as Jean says. And, you know, we talk about what they remember of being in the office in the 1970s, the other women they worked with there, and what they remember about writing these amazing characters. So let's check it out. First up is Jean Thomas. Hi, Jean. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you. Well, thank you for having me. This should be very interesting. <laughs> yeah. You were one of the first women to ever be credited to have written a Marvel comic in 1972, along with Linda Fight and Carol Suling. Well, I have to say, I think it was a wonderful opportunity. I wish we had been able to do more with that line. I applaud them for attempting to lean into the women's movement. And um, the goal was to do comics with women's characters written by women. So we gave it the best shot we could. I mean, you set the groundwork for what we do today. But before we get into all of that, I'd love for our listeners at home to learn a little bit about you. Did you grow up reading comics? I grew up reading more Mad Magazine. And then in terms of comics, the Sunday comic strips, my very favorite was The Beautiful Prince Valiant. So I didn't really read that many comic books themselves. I came to New York from St. Louis in 1968 with my then husband, Roy Thomas, who was an editor and writer at Marvel Comics. And very soon after that, he dragooned me into the office. They were shorthanded, as they frequently were, because the line was rapidly expanding, and they needed an office-editorial assistant. I have to say, the beginning was very humble. I mean, I literally sat at a card table with a portable Smith Corona. So I guess I just shuffled huge quantities of artwork, scripts, coloring, different stages of the comics to the next person. Went from plot to boards to writer to letter to inker, stats to colorist then everything to the comics code. And all of this then often required a second trip for the material back to the office. So there was an enormous amount of paperwork floating around. Hearing people talk about how many pieces of paper were required to like make a comic back in the day, it's pretty amazing that so many comics got printed every month. Yes. Well, at that point, Flo Steinberg had been out of the office for about a year. And I think Linda Fight was... In another little partitioned area, I think she was answering fan mail, and Robin Green was Stanley's secretary. And as you may know, Robin sort of abruptly departed for the greener pastures of Rolling Stone, and I got the big desk. That's how I got promoted. I got the big desk. I got to move from the card table to a real desk. I would love to sort of go back a little bit, you know, what did you think when Roy said he wanted you both to move to New York? I mean, New York was a unique place to be in the late 1960s. Oh, I thought it was wonderful. I thought it was a wonderful idea. I had always wanted to come back to New York. I had visited 
during a spring break a couple years earlier. I loved it. And the minute I took the subway somewhere, I felt like I was home. I grew up in the Midwest, but never liked to drive. I loved the subway, loved being able to walk, loved the energy on the streets. I just loved the city and have remained here ever since, really. I understand that, too. I love the city. So what was it like working in the office back then? I know it was a much smaller team. It was in like a strange time where like comics had exploded and then they were like going down a little bit in the late 1960s. Well, my previous office jobs had been in things like law offices, very stuffy. So this was a complete and total revelation. People were funny, friendly. It was sort of a loosey-goosey attitude. But I don't want you to think that it was all paper airplanes over the partitions. I mean, there was a lot of work being done. It's just that it was being done with good humor and lots of cartoons about people and things tacked up on your bulletin board and just an interesting time and and people talking about crazy things and Stanley acting out his characters and jumping up and down on a sofa and people doing voices to sort of convey what they wanted from their character. So it was an office, and there was a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun, too. It was like a place where people came with passion for the things that they were doing, this place where people were drawing characters that could fly or swing through the air or, you know, turn into giant green monsters. And drawing caricatures of each other. Yeah. I've seen so many of the Marie Severin caricatures. Those are so much fun to look at. Did Marie do any cartoons of you? Yes, she did. And actually, in an issue of something that was a black and white humor magazine, I think it was Boom or Spoof or Not Brand Eck, one of those, there was a takeoff on Dark Shadows that we called Darn Shadows. And if you remember, there were two little kids that lived in the Collinwood mansion. And Marie distinctly drew the little children, the little boy and girl, to look like what she imagined little Roy and little Jean would have looked like. Oh, my God, that's so cute. So let's talk about writing. Were you interested in writing before they approached you for Night Nurse? Well, I think I edged into it because I first did proofreading. Well, actually, different layers of proofreading. First, looking to see that other people's proofreading changes had been made. Then my own proofreading. Then proofreading different stages. And then I sort of graduated into coloring first. I did a little coloring. And then some romance comics. So finally, in the very early 70s, while I was still in college, I got to put some of my own words in balloons. And how did that feel? Oh, I liked it. No, I liked it very much. I mean, obviously, in the moment, you were just like there, it was happening. But like previous to that, there wasn't necessarily women in that role. Did you just like believe that you belong there? Like, was there any sort of feeling knowing that there weren't that many women before you? Well, there weren't that many women before me, but I think there were always some. There was always someone And I think at the same time, I think Linda was probably writing something. Women definitely were behind the letters to the editor's page. If we didn't completely write a lot, 
but we edited them and then probably wrote some of that filler copy, things like that. So I think women were always doing a little bit of writing. And the romance comics, I think, were more often written by women. And I think if there was a change that I was part of, I think it was being more conscious of having the lead character, the girl in love, having a job of her own, or choosing the job, or choosing something other than the love interest, or having a good job, like being a scientist or being a doctor. Is that sort of where you were leading the night nurse, that you wanted her to have a job, being able to like live on her own? Oh, definitely. I think that was actually a part of the ground rules, or that was something that I put in right from the start. These were Linda Carter night nurse, and then her squad, two girls that she had gone to nursing school with, one well-to-do girl from the Midwest and another girl from the inner city neighborhood. Yes, they all were planning to work for their living and almost always chose duty and their patients over the personal life. Yeah, which in that moment of time was definitely the movement, right? Second wave feminism, women were taking control of their lives, you know, especially with the advent of birth control and 1969 was definitely a period of time. (laughs) And I think with Night Nurse also, I think with the whole line, the mini line of the three women's oriented comics, I think they all had some feminist bent to them. They all had strong women. I think Claws the Cat by Linda Fite was probably the most traditional superhero-ish, and she certainly wore the more traditional superhero outfit. But then Shana She-Devil may have worn leopard skin and had tigers, but she was a biologist or something. She was sort of a jacked-up Jane Goodall. And Night Nurse, well, whenever there was a decision to be made, she chose her duty. She chose her job. Now, I have to say, Metro General must have been the most dangerous hospital this side of Beirut. (laughs) Because the tagline for the comic was actually something like, drama, danger, death. No, thank you. I think I'll go to Columbia Presbyterian. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's interesting when you look at those three characters and you break them down. You know, we, we get a chance to talk to Linda for this episode and we talked to Carol for the book. All three of these characters, they have the essence of comics before, right? Obviously, you look at Shauna and she is clearly part of this sort of like Amazonian sort of like swinging through the trees. And then you also have Night Nurse as sort of like a romance, right? You see the elements of a romance comic and then What's fascinating is that they may not have been like necessarily typically successful because I know that they did sell, but they didn't sell what they were maybe expecting them to sell. But they did have longevity. All three of these characters had longevity. Oh, I think it's terrific. And I think if back in the day, the night nurses had been able to patch up superheroes, I think we'd be talking about a 50 year phenomenon instead of something that went dormant for decades and then was resurrected in this new sort of role. Yeah, I think it had been a little too early for its time, maybe. I think so. I think it looked like a romance comic, but wasn't lovey enough for preteen girls. And it had action, but no costumed characters. So there was not that much to attract boy readers. But 
I'm glad that the short run turned out to have an outsized impact. I mean, that's the story of the Marvel Universe, something that the roots are started in one decade and a couple of decades later, they come back and are sort of like grown into the thing that becomes the character that we all know today. So you had the opportunity to write Night Nurse, and you also wrote some sort of horror Marvel fandom. Like, was that connecting? You just sort of, you rolled from that to the next? For a long time, just as part of comics being the family business, I did serve as a sounding board and sometimes as a co-plotter with my husband, Roy Thomas. And one of the characters that we co-plotted, being bored out of our minds at an auto show for no apparent reason, We plotted Werewolf by Night. Now, you talk about something that was just out of a slow afternoon that has turned into, again, a phenomenon. Was that something that's sort of like normal? You guys would go out for like lunch and then you would like throw things at a wall thinking about like what comic Roy could pitch or you could pitch next? Yes. And not only that, cab rides. Cab rides were a great time to discuss plots. Because there were a lot of late night cab rides. Because when all of these things had to go on to the next stage, I mean, to keep the deadline, somebody would have to take it to the post office, the all night post office, to get it postmarked by that day or whatever. So, yeah, late night cab rides were a great time to plot. And there was also a community element, right? You guys had fun in the office, but did you go out after? Did you have a. I've heard stories of liquid lunches, maybe. Oh, for the office, I would say it was most often that the men went out drinking with the men at the Coral Bar, and the women went out drinking to something called the Women's Exchange or Schraffs. And you would think, oh, well, these are places where ladies would go in white gloves and have tea and crustless sandwiches. But they served the most powerful drinks. And I can remember going out to lunch with Marie Severin, a lady named Nancy in circulation from magazine management, and someone else. And the drinks were so strong. (laughs) It was wonderful. And then there were a few co-ed lunches at the Playboy Club, which happened to be just a short walk away. So that was interesting, too. And the men would always say, oh, We're guessing her name. Ha, ha, ha. And the idea, it's like, yeah, what were they guessing? They were not guessing the name on the the little badge. No. No. For those listening at home that do not know about the Playboy Club, it was a classy place that women would serve lunch and food and drinks in that typical Playboy Bunny outfit. But it was a place in Midtown. It was really classy. It's not maybe what you think about it today. You should go look it up, find it on Wikipedia. Well, I think in that whole era, and especially Marvel and magazine management being in the heart of the advertising agency district, Madison Avenue in the 50s and 60s, there were just endless places around for long liquid lunches because that was just the era. Yeah, very Mad Men. Yes. So, you know, obviously you started at Marvel. It wasn't necessarily your intention to start there. You ended up writing comics. Did you want to stay in comics? Did you end up being like, this was a period of my life and I'm going to go on to my next adventure? That was it. I realized after I got my college degree and did some other comics, I did Spidey Super Stories. And one of the reasons I was able to do that 
is my education degree. My double major in psych and education was a good credential for working for children's television workshops. And then coincidentally, having worked for children's television workshop with Spidey was a good credential to go on and work for Parents Magazine Children's Group, Children's Digest, Humpty Dumpty, Young Miss. So it's interesting, one sort of led to another. But I think by the mid-70s, I just knew I had to pave my own path. And just life took a different turn and went on to different areas of publishing where words were never in balloons. And then went on to ever older audiences. Some people stay forever and some people take their moment and keep on going. But wait, I'd love for you to explain what the Super Spidey Stories was. Well, Spidey Super Stories was a comic book version of a children's television workshop teaching to read show The Electric Company. And on The Electric Company, they had Spider-Man as one of the characters. And he would think out words. So he wouldn't speak on the show. He would think the words and they would go in a balloon. And then I did script versions, comic book script versions of some of the stories that were told in Electric Company with Electric Company characters. And then some very elementary language versions of stories, classic Spider-Man stories. And there was a vocabulary list and everything was supposed to be written on a high interest second grade level. And we literally had lists of vocabulary words that we could use, couldn't use, couldn't use too many syllables. So nobody else in Marvel really wanted to touch that with a 10 foot pole. And it was something that I really enjoyed. So that happened to be a real happy partnership. Yeah, there's so many things that Marvel did to get their characters on screen or in front of children that were such a unique experience only in the last like 10 years that it's become as huge as it is, but it was always part of everything. Yes. And I think now there are many more levels of Marvel material. There are things for the very adult reader, very sophisticated, and then elementary school reading level versions of the superhero characters. You can read mid-grade books. You can read entry-level books. I mean, yeah, there's so much stuff out there. And it sort of all started, I mean, besides Captain America, most of these characters came out of the 60s and into the 70s. Like, it's pretty magical, man. You're part of the history, Jean. Well, thank you. Sometimes I feel historic. Oh, it's history (laughs) in a good way. You know, a little footnote in Marvel history. And if you talk about the Marvel Universe the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm probably a little asteroid out there, but I'm happy to know that I'm out there. I am happy that you were also out there too, because without a few people leading the path, leading the charge, Marie Severin in the bullpen, Flo at the front desk, you and Linda and Carol, maybe we wouldn't have eventually got here. Now it's much more welcoming and much more open for everyone. So that's very magical. I do want to thank you. Your little footnote is incredibly important to the story of women at Marvel. Well, thank you very much. Well, just the fact that there is a Women in Marvel podcast and you interview so many women who have something to do with 
every aspect of Marvel Comics and that there are so many more aspects, so many more platforms and avenues to enjoy the characters and the stories. It's just amazing. Yeah, it's really quite a great time to be able to interact with this fandom and this community. But Jean, this has been so amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, you're very welcome. And thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate the opportunity. I love talking to Jean. She's so amazing. And next up is my conversation with Linda Fight, all about the claws of the cat and her career in comics. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. You grew up reading comics. You were a comics fan. I grew up reading. I read everything. I read the backs of cereal boxes. I read my mother's ladies' home journal. I read everything. But I did love comics because, as I still say, nothing beats words and pictures together. I think it's a fantastic medium from the hieroglyphics one, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) So yes, I would read comics even as a kid. One of my favorite childhood memories is walking on a hot summer day from my grandmother's house, the three blocks to the little corner drugstore. She'd give us a quarter and we could get like three comics and a popsicle. And then just sitting on the little wall and reading comics and sucking on that popsicle. But so, yes, I started reading comics early on. That's part of the story, right, that I think so many people don't know is that comics were incredibly accessible. You would go to the candy store or the corner store. They were on a spinner rack. It was whatever that store bought. So it was like nothing was in order. It was kind of like, you know, you pick up a comic and you read it was great. And the cover art was very important. If you were just spinning that rack and it was a great cover, you might just buy it on impulse. So I remember Stan, covers are very important, he used to say. Very, very, very important because of those newsstands, right? Yeah. I mean, even now to this day, covers are still so important when you go into a comic book shop. So did you read Marvel growing up or was it something that you found later on? I sort of drifted off from comics and I was in college and we went down to a friend's house in Raleigh, North Carolina, and he was reading Marvel comics and he went, God, these are so groovy. And then I would go into Lynchburg, Virginia and pick up comics on the newsstand there. And I also picked up a few Charlton love comics because they cracked me up. So I'm reading Thor and Spider-Man and all those. I loved Marvel Frankly, it was so much more exciting, but I was also reading some crazy Charlton comics that turned out to be written by later a very good friend, Gary Friedrich. So it was great. What was it about Spider-Man and Thor and these characters that drew you to them? Well, first of all, Stan's so smart. You know, he started putting all those names, you know, he started giving credits. In the olden days, I didn't know who drew what. There was certainly no little box. And he did that Lilton list this and Mary that and Happy Herb and, you know, all that. He added personality to the creative process, but also they were much more fun. Spider-Man was fun and wisecracking. I mean, I fell for everything he did, which was very clever, you know the troubled superheroes. And I loved the sort of Shakespearean stuff he was getting into with the arch language, foolishness, just God bless Stan. Yeah, 
I bought it. And plus the art was just phenomenal. I loved Ditko so much. And Kirby, I mean, like I never saw anything like that before. It's just mind blowing. Plus I was trying to be cool. You know what I'm saying, Judy? Like here I am not scholarly. So I said, I'm just gonna do alternative reading. So I've had the opportunity to be told this amazing story of how you got started. But let's talk about what made you want to write to Stan. A friend of mine named Pam from New Jersey and I said, you know, you're casting around your senior year. What are we going to do with it? And we both decided we want to go to the Big Apple. We're going to Manhattan. So then I started looking for a job. And then my dad had some contacts. And so I maybe was going to get a job, something to do with the government. Then my mother had a friend who turned out to be Pat Carbine, one of the founders of Ms. Magazine. And I think she was at Look or Time Life or something. But I wanted to work in the bullpen because it looked like so much fun. So I just wrote a letter. I tell you, Judy, three of my jobs in my life have come from me writing wise ass letters. And that was <laughs> that was the first. That was the first. So I wrote him this stupid, corny letter. I still have it because Flo saved it and gave it back to me. <laughs> it's so cute. But in the letter is a line like, I know there are no heifers in the bullpen. I swear to God, I put it in there. And I shoveled the praise. And Stan always liked that, of course. And he loved that this was a college girl. He loved that he had college students reading his comics. So the next thing you know is I get this call from Flo. We can't offer you a job, but if you come to New York, Stan would love to see you and talk to you. And that's how I got the job. Even though it paid <laughs> just, I mean, it was, so, they said, we'll give you a summer job. I went, uh, and my friend Pam from New Jersey said, are you crazy? You could be old. No, you wanted to work in the bullpen. I'm happy I did. Anyway, I went and talked to Stan and he liked me and he said, hire her. And that was that. I mean, it's such a phenomenal story. And this is the story of so many things about there. like, oh, there were never any women there, but there were like there was flow there. So, you know, you get this summer job. What were you doing in the office? I was mostly helping flow because the fan mail had started to get overwhelming and she still had other secretarial duties to do. She's still doing secretarial stuff for Stan. So I was helping her answer fan mail and pretty soon because I'm an English lit major, you know, I was proofreading stuff and writing blurbs, you know, little easy promotional blurbs, that kind of thing. And answering the front door sometimes, like when we moved and there was no receptionist, I would sometimes answer the front door of our tiny little office up Madison Avenue away from the mothership. What was the office like back then? Just as they describe, everyone describes it, it was a rollicking good time. You see, the bullpen was all artists. No writers were actually in the bullpen. And you know, if you're a writer, I mean, you have to write in some sort of isolation. You don't listen to rock and roll. Well, some people probably do, but I remember Stan coming out of his office and saying, would you people be quiet? Because it was just five of us just talk, 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 talk about everything. And it was fun and paper airplanes and Marie drawing cartoons and it was better than the best high school. It was just way fun, you know? And everyone got along. There wasn't a pissant in the bunch. It's great. It's great. And you, so you did the summer job and then you came back, right? So you, you were sort of off and on. I didn't leave. They just said, 
I didn't leave. I did (laughs) not leave yet. (laughs) I said, I'd like to stay. Could you give me more money? Yes, they did. So they bumped me up to sort of a regular salary. And then I just more of the same. And then Flo left, I think, six or seven months later, and they hired Robin Green to be Stan's secretary. They were still using that word back then. And then I was doing more production, actually, with rubber cement and whiteout, and, but a lot more proofreading and still handling a lot of the fan mail. Oh, and I'm bugging Roy, of course. Roy, let me write something. Let me write something. And I think he did a couple of little things, right? I think I did a Western while I was still on staff. Rawhide kid or one of them. <laughs> you did like a backstory for an Uncanny X-Men issue. and then Oh, you that famous. Did... Yeah, that was the Jean Grey house cleaning episode. <laughs> Beautifully drawn by Werner Roth, I must say. So, okay, let's take a step back about writing. It's interesting because this is a thing that we sort of follow through with the book is this idea of like, as a woman, I mean, you clearly belong there like anyone else did, but it was a period of time where like there weren't a lot of women writing in comics. You were one of the first to be credited at Marvel. You know, what made you think, I mean, you were an English major, so obviously you knew how to write, but like, what was the thing that made you think that you could be like, Roy, I want to write? I like to write and I'm a good writer and I loved comics. And plus I sort of Loved that sort of sense of humor, that foolishness. I thought, I can do this. Give me a shot. Coach, put me in, you know. And he was gracious. I mean, he he wasn't bad about it. He was trying to manage this little stable of writers. So when there was an opening, especially when they wanted to do this women's, we're going to get in on this women's lib thing right now here. I don't blame him one bit, kid. Then he said, I know what we'll do. We'll have a woman artist, a woman writer. And then that's how I got that. So let's talk about Claws of the Cat. I mean, I think it was sort of like Roy and Stan were like, here's three characters we want. Like, how did it all come to be? They had the idea for the character. Let's call her the cat. That's about as far as they went. And let's get Marie to draw it. And Linda, you want to try writing it. And beyond that, I think it was pretty much all on me. See what you can come up with. And that's what I did. And I just typed up three or four pages and gave it to Marie and we talked about it. And she came up with the costume designs. I want to talk a little bit about Marie because she was such a force in the bullpen, but a name that not a lot of people knew until people really started talking about it after her time. What was it like working with Marie? Oh, God, she was so cool. And plus, she's so gifted. She had a wicked sense of humor. She could draw circles around anybody. She was hardworking. She would just sit there and draw these cartoons all day long of every time anyone said something stupid, she would draw a cartoon every day. I have a whole collection of Marie cartoons, too. They're just fabulous. Yeah, Marie is just one of those people that I wish I had the opportunity to meet. So let's talk about the cat. You're given this character. They want her to be a cat. Very sort of typical female character. Do you sort of remember the process of coming up with her backstory and sort of like... No, I just made it up. It was fun. That was fun. <laughs> you know, I just made it up. And of course, I had at the time that sort of feminist... I was trying to actually, in my amusing, not so cool way, poor woman, whatever her name was, Greer, right? <laughs> with this nice husband that she married too young and dropped out of college to support. And that, you know, it was a little bit over the top. But yeah, I, I did it. It's all me. It's all me. <laughs> I mean, it it was something, you know, and sort of looking at it 
after all this time, I wonder if it come out a couple years later, if it had been more successful. Like, I wonder if all those three books, like, in the way that they marketed them or in the way that they sort of produced them, right? There was an inkling of like, okay, clearly there's female readership, right? We want to hit this second wave feminism. We want to hit the nail on this. Let's put female creators. But like, where do you think it just, it just was the wrong time? No, I don't know. I think they should have stuck it out. You know, like when you open a new restaurant in a, a neighborhood that's not used to that cuisine, you have to be willing to lose a little money for a while until the word gets out. And I guess the sales figures were not bad by today's standards at all. But they had this level, like if you went below that, they would just cut you off. And I think they were premature in ending that book. They should have given it a couple more, at least give it six issues. And maybe it would have caught on. It was a brand new book. And of course, that was that transition time also between when the readers of comic books were going from little boys to teenagers, you know, older kids. So there was still a residual of like, this girl stuff, I'm not, you know, there was still that. So I think they needed to be a bit more patient. And I think it might have caught on, maybe with better writer. I don't know. But I don't think the concept itself was wrong. The cat obviously transitioned into Tigra and Shauna and the night nurse reappeared in comics later. All three of those characters have returned in Marvel and were proven to be successful characters. Clearly, they wouldn't have been brought back if someone didn't see something in them. Right. They had to get sexier and more dangerous, I think. That's the thing. Yeah. And now they've like, in this decade, they've sort of mellowed out a bit. They've mellowed out a little bit. Now they've become a little bit more like they're women than they, if they have a sexuality, it is something that they're comfortable with, not necessarily something that's for the audience. But you worked at Marvel for, you were there from 68? I was only there a year and a half or a little more than a year and a half. And I only left because I wanted more money. Yeah. And you were sort of still involved in, I mean, we talk so much about on this podcast and the book, The Marvel Family, right? Like you may not have been working in the office anymore, but you were still part of this community. Well, yeah, because, you know, I hooked up with Herb and got married and he was working there until he wasn't, I mean, 30 years. So for 30 years, we were on the softball team. I played softball. I got a hit. (laughs) Yeah. So we were all part of all of those guys. And there's a big Marvel community up here, too. We used to have these fabulous things called First Friday, where everyone would meet at different houses, like Bernie Wrightson's house, or James Gurney was part of that. They'd show their stuff and talk and drink and have a good time. Yeah, it was great. It was good old times. Oh, and my son Alex actually did layouts for Marvel when he was a teenager for Herb. Oh. So, so it is all in the family. He has credit. He's like, you know. oh my God, that's so interesting. Did you ever want to write again? Or were you sort of like, I did it, I tried it? Well, I started working for a newspaper and then I was writing for them a lot. And I went, yeah, it's enough. That's good. I didn't care that much, Judy. What can I tell you? <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like a, I have to be a comic book writer. I just, I liked it, but yeah, I didn't. It, it wasn't worth the nut, you know? Yeah, I understand. And I I was plenty fulfilled with my other crap, you know? Yeah. But you had this continually amazing story of this time that you spent 
working at Marvel Comics? Oh, kid, I went to my high school 50th reunion and I said, anybody else in Wikipedia? No. <laughs> I mean, we have doctors, lawyers, educators, professors, but nobody else is in Wikipedia, but the comic book artist who did like one comic. <laughs> I said, don't feel bad, man. It's like sports. It's like if you played Major League Baseball, even if you were in triple A for two years, someone's got your stats, you know? That's what it's like. Fandom. Yeah. Fandom, right? It's a fascinating world. That it is. Comics that were started in the 1930s, this company that's now 80 plus years old has this entire history and, yeah. and it's all searchable on the internet which is like the best that's part. right and i love the medium i still love the medium i love that so many young women are doing comics and i love that there's so many more international artists that we're aware of and that are working in comics it's like music i can't keep up but it's just thrilling that there's so much going on Linda, I always love talking to you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Thanks again to both Linda and Jean for joining us on Women of Marvel. I also interviewed them and Carol Suling, who made up the trio of those three Roman writing comics in 1972. In my book, Supervisible, The Story of Women of Marvel, you can pre-order it now. It comes out next spring, 2022. And please stay tuned for even more stories of the women and men and non-binary creators that we talked to for this book. It's really been a magical ride of sort of the experiences of all the different people from all the different decades. So, Ellie, it's your turn, right? Next week, you have something a little different planned for us. I do. I'm mixing it up a little and bringing in a whole group of wonderful women of Marvel that we're going to have a roundtable conversation with. I invited four Marvel editors, two past, two present, and we're going to talk about girl comics. So we did the 70s today. Girl comics are from the 50s, and they were romance and girls' adventure series. But we also revisited that title more recently, and we're going to have some real talk about what it means to edit comics for women. I am so excited for you all to hear this episode, but until then, this is Marvel. Your universe. Women of Marvel is produced by Alexis Williams, Isabel Robertson, Jasmine Estrada, Ellie Pyle, Judy Stevens, and Angelique Rocher. Our development manager is Brad Barton. Our production manager is Larissa Rosen. Our executive producer is Jill DeBoff. Listen weekly on SiriusXM and on Marvel Podcasts Unlimited on Apple Podcasts. See you next week. Mm -hmm.